Welcome to Flow Stars, candid conversations between Dr. Peter O'Toole and the big hitters of flow cytometry. Brought to you by Beckman Coulter at Bite Size Bio. Hello, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today on Flow Stars, I'm joined by Jessica Houston, Professor of Chemical and Materials Engineering at New Mexico State University and President elect of ISA. And we discuss the difficulties of finding your feet as a new PI. You know, sometimes finding your own niche as a faculty member can be tricky because you don't want to do what your advisor's doing or you don't want to, you know, like be perceived as you're copying or piggybacking or whatever. Right through to her successful Fulbright scholarship application. I applied and got it. I didn't think I would get that grant, but I did get it on that first try. And I told we told our kids like, look, we're moving to Japan for, <laughs> for six months. And we go back to the start of her career to hear about her early switch from industrial engineering to chemical engineering. To be honest, that that experience made me think like, nope, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> I don't want to walk around a plant with a hard hat and I, this is not for me. So at that point, I, I looked at research opportunities in the department. To how she was able to balance work and family life more recently. We really have had important support over the years with my in-laws, as well as my parents, as well as their aunts and uncles that help. So we have family that can work, can be with them if we can't. Um, for example, both of us are traveling. All on this episode of Flow Stars. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today on Flow Stars, I'm joined, I'm joined by Jessica Houston from New Mexico State University. Oh, and should I say, president-elect for Isaac. Jessica, how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Nice. Uh, thank you for saying yes to coming on it. President-elect. Sure. Yes. <laughs> At that, that's, I guess that's a big deal, but the big deal's to come. Yeah, it's a, it's a big role. It's going to be a lot of work, um, but I think I'm geared up for it. You know, I've been with Isaac for a long time now, and... I guess I could see it coming, but I didn't, you know, you'd never expect, expect it, but here it is. <laughs> well, well, very many congratulations. It's a very honourable position as well, a very prestigious position within Isaac. Uh, for those who may be not familiar with Isaac, do you want to just describe what Isaac is? Yeah, so Isaac stands for the International Society for the Advancement of Cytometry. Maybe a lot of people watching would know, but uh, we are about a 2,000 person society we um, are composed of a lot of members that have interest in quantitative cell sciences. So that ranges, that ranges from people who are working in core facilities with flow cytometry instrumentation and um, people that are in academia studying or utilizing flow cytometry as a tool to understand something in their you know, biological systems. Um, people that uh, might more be more clinically inclined that are utilizing it as a diagnostic means for things like immunophenotyping. So it's a society that welcomes all people that are interested in, in that area in this big field. And we have a council, we have, um, we run the annual CYTO meeting, we have a journal, Cytometry A, so we do a lot of stuff. I, do, I just talked, you said there are lots of sections, lots of yes. working groups. I, I bet you don't have an answer for this, so this is maybe unfair, but do you have a feel for how many different people are actually helping via the committees and sections? Yeah, wow, that's a good question. I should know the number because we have a lot of volunteers. I mean, <laughs> if you look at our committees, there might be about 
30 or so we have and with, within each committee, you may have about anywhere between five to 15 more or more people participating, depending on it's a, it's a larger task force or smaller. And so, um, so it's, it's, a, it's a lot of, you know, and there's a lot of overlap. Some people are on many different committees, but I'd say we have like, you know, basically a, a good body of, of volunteers. And I, I wouldn't know what to guess in terms of numbers or like percentage relative to like the overall membership. But it's, it's certainly it's certainly a lot yeah just just working on the, the, those guesstimates you must have yeah. know, 150 200 different volunteers which is yeah <clears throat> shows the community spirit i think and, and the community willingness to support isaac yeah right it, it is it's very community focused and you know the times that i've when i first started with the society to to where it is now i've noticed you know that there's there's always a group of people that are always coming in always interested and once they get in they feel they seem hooked <laughs> hooked on it like oh I, this is this is a great society i like the people in it i like you know the, the meeting and so i want to be part of it and so i want to join this committee or that so yeah and, and the fact that it being international very much international you would think that makes it a little more clunky in terms of how to get people together but it it does it works and you know we're seeing now a lot of expansion to other parts of the world a lot more expansion in latin america which is a great thing so I, i'm yeah. just thinking about all those committee meetings where you have people in australia europe yeah. america and someone is always going to be rather inconvenient yeah. but everyone yeah. still turns up People show up. In fact, we, you know, we had a committee meeting yesterday and we had somebody who was, you know, at, on at 2.30 a.m. So that's dedication. And I mean, I, I worked, lived in Japan for some time with my family. I did a Fulbright and I remember thinking like, oh, great, I'm going to have to do these set, uh, like ISAC committee meetings. And yeah, I would just get up early. It would be up at like, I don't know, 4 a.m. or 5 a.m but you do and you know it's you we have to work and maybe you know make a compromise sometimes have meetings at different times to try to work with the time zone but that's what you do <laughs> I, i'm just thinking uh, we'll come back to isaac in a minute but actually before yeah. we leave isaac <clears throat> i'm just thinking back all the past presidents i can think of you yeah. may be one of the youngest ever i might i was somebody brought that up to me and i thought yeah probably um i i don't I mean, we have so Johnny and then Rachel, um, you know, the most immediate, yep. and then Paul, Paul Wallace. And we had John Nolan. I, I don't think he, maybe he was closer in age to me yep. when he was president, but maybe, perhaps. Um, I don't mind saying my age. I'm 45, so <laughs> so maybe I don't know. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm just going back with Paul Smith, Andreas. Uh, yeah, it goes right, Andreas. Yeah, uh, Andreas. Close to that. Uh -huh. Yeah. <clears throat> it's got to be very close up so then so, so this is uh, 45 there you are becoming president of isaac but what got you interested in science to start with yeah so that goes back to high school i you know i i think i was always you know inclined in more of the stem fields in terms of like interest area so i was not very much into arts or you know history or those types of social sciences i was yeah. more uh, liked math. I think I did well in math and I really in high school had a great biology teacher. And so 
Um, we have a, these AP courses, which you could get college credit for. So I tested into a, you know, a bio AP class and um, I just loved it. And she, at the time, she, she put me in touch with a local in, in my, I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So in Santa Fe, um, there's some, a little bit of biotech, but Genzyme was one of the companies that was, okay. you know, that had a headquarters mm -hmm. in, in Santa Fe and they were doing samples, amniocentesis samples, and they were just basically doing genetic profiling with samples that they'd get from women all over the country. And so my teacher set me up with an internship there at Genzyme and that's where I learned cell culture, you know, as a high school student, you learn like cell culture, you know, what it, what it looked looks like to do, you know, a little bit of genetics stuff. And so that was fun. And I was really into it. I ended up being engineering, not, you know, not biology. So I was going to ask that question. So at the age of 16, 17, where did you see your career going at that point? Yeah, at that point, I, mean, I just knew I was going to college. I just knew I was going to go to the university. Um, um, we, my family, you know, couldn't afford to really pay or help me pay to help me get to a, a really out of state, more elite school. So I ended up coming to the state school, which is, you know, NMSU, New Mexico State, which is where I work now. Um, and so, but I was an undergraduate here. And um, at the time, my dad, who's an engineer at Los Alamos National Lab, recommended to me I try chemical engineering because it kind of is somewhat close to bio, you know, bioengineering, which is what I started getting interested in and started learning about. Of course, I was learning what genetic engineering was. And then I, you know, and this was in the like mid nineties. And I was um, basically starting to kind of get an, a sense of that field. And I took, I um, ended up joining a chemical engineering department and learned that it was completely different than bioengineering because, you know, it was, it's basically thermodynamics, it's fluid mechanics, it's, you know, it's really at that time was still focused on um, teaching students to be prepared for industries like oil and gas and, and chemical industry like Dow Chemical, DuPont, yep. Chevron, Exxon. So it was really, it's, it's, it's like a, you know, a curriculum made for students that are going to be process engineers. And so, um, so that was kind of eye-opening, but I stuck with it because I knew that it, I liked the challenge and I just knew there was really nothing else I could think of that I would want to do. So I did it. Yeah. So at that point, were you thinking you, your career could possibly go into the more chemical I did. area? I did. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I could have been working on a, a bleach factory or, you know, I actually did an internship with Archer Daniels Midland, ADM. That's a huge company in the midwest and i lived in illinois and they i worked at a corn plant that's where they took corn and they you know isolated different parts of the corn to do um to use it for different things for example they were had these enzyme columns they were using it to make high fructose corn syrup so it was like a big um and they also took out protein to do that something with the protein of the corn so it was really a huge plant and i did an intern there but to to be honest that that experience made me think like nope this is not what I want to do. <laughs> I don't want to walk around a plant with a hard hat and I, this is not for me. So at that point, I, I looked at research opportunities in the department and started in research. I, I love the idea of working in a, a career in bleach, which, which right, yeah. never be a career. Your career must fade really fast. If yeah. It's 
That's a good I know, because I, I had chemical engineering friends that did that, and they were telling me about their job, and I was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very sterile. Anyway, <laughs> too many bleach, there really are too many bleach checks to go through this. So what got you back into the light? So obviously that wasn't for you. So you didn't want to wear the hair, hard hats. You obviously fancied the white coat and goggles instead and, right. and, and blue overshoes. Uh, so how did you get back into life sciences? Yeah, so um, in our department in chemical engineering, we had a faculty member. Her name was Sarah Harkham, and she was doing a lot of interesting stuff with E. coli as a model system. So she was using E. coli as a model system, and they were she was doing some um, things that were doing treatments of amino acids in the E. coli, and all of her whole project was, the focus was, um, was if I can recall, a um, kind of a bioprocessing um, uh, focus. So her objectives were, you know, developing the model system of E. coli to enhance their ability to be used as, you know, as um, in bioprocessing. So whatever that might be, because I think, you know, chemical engineers at the time, they were in bio, like bio was a big part of chemical engineering, yeah, but it was course. a big part for like scale up, for example, like using E. coli to be, to make insulin, right? Or, big fermentation processes where you use biological systems to, to make something, you know, whatever engineering you're doing in the genetics to produce whatever protein outcome. So she did that research here in our department and I began working for her and I thought it was really cool because I was doing like these mini preps and just learning a little bit more about like, you know, bio, bio as, a, as a part of chemical engineering. And so after I worked for her, then I knew I'm going to go to graduate school. So this is at this point, I know that grad that it's going to be a graduate school trajectory for me, not a just not just an industry job. Yeah. So where did you go for your PhD? So then um, I went to Texas A&M. So Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. And I, actually, there's a reason I went to Texas, and that's because at the time um, I was getting married and my husband, who was also mm -hmm. in um, he was in biochemistry, was already at UT um, getting a graduate degree. So he, he and I met at NMSU, and then he moved to Texas. We lived apart for some time, and then I, I knew I was going to graduate school, so I looked around at universities and found Texas A&M, which a program I really liked, and I ended up doing some really cool graduate work that was what I had not expected at all, like a total different field, and I... Um, it was all in a chemical engineering department, but that's when I started branching into optics and, and more optical engineering stuff. Okay. So, so actually, I think, I, I don't know, I presume this is your husband on this picture? Yes, so that is Kevin. For those who are listening, can you describe the picture for us? Yeah, this is a recent <laughs> picture we took only a couple of weeks ago. We came, went to Houston, Texas to watch the Houston Astros play and that's the game. Um, that's Kevin kind of in the between two of my, our sons. Joaquin is on his right and Caleb's on his left near me. And then our daughter, her name is Kira Luna. She's there too. But we have this big love for Houston because, you know, I can tell the rest of my story, but we ended up living in Houston for some time before we moved back to New Mexico. But we're big, we're big baseball fans. <laughs> and that was Baylor College of Medicine that you went to? I was there. Yeah, I was at Baylor. I did some time also at MD Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Okay, so you're getting into optics, interested. We're still not at flow cytometry yet. It wasn't flow yet. It was not. And so I was in graduate school in the very early 2000s. Um, and 
I found this advisor in the chemical engineering department. Her name was Eva Sevek. And Eva was one of the greatest advisors you know, I've ever worked with. Um, she was building this research program um, all focused on the area of frequency domain photon migration. And what that basically is, is using near infrared light as a means to interrogate um, dense and deep tissues. Mm -hmm. And so as we know, near infrared light has a propensity to um, go deeper in the tissue because there's more scattering and less absorption in blood and melanin and water. So it can scatter deeply. So back then she was developing this um, and we call it frequency domain because we were modulating the laser at radio frequencies and measuring the propagation of near infrared light into deep tissue and then detecting the light as it propagated back out as a means to try to characterize the tissues itself. So let's say it's a tumor, the heterogeneity within the tissue. And it's a challenging field because as you know, um, all of the imaging modalities out there, whether that be X-ray CT, MRI, ultrasound, do a much better job because they can actually, you know, those types, those sources of radiation will very nicely um, be detected deep, and whereas light is difficult. So, but we were developing a tool to do that. And she started working with people at MD Anderson. So we could do this in small animals. And then she eventually went to Baylor where we were doing in actually clinical studies with women to try to detect. Um, and and so, um, so that was where I started, you know, learning a little bit more about biomedical optics, about fluorescence, um, contrast agents, drug delivery into deep tissues, um, using light, um, you know, using light and lasers and, and detectors and all of that. Yeah. Still not on a flow cytometer though. <laughs> so what was, so where, where was your first interaction with the flow cytometer? So that was in, as a postdoc. So then that takes me to, um, after we graduated, Kev, uh, Kevin and I decided to start a family and we wanted to come back to New Mexico because that's, we're closer to our families and yep. we wanted some extra support. And being that we were both um, had a PhD there, you know, the state of New Mexico doesn't have a whole lot of industry for PhD. We have our national labs, we have our universities, yep. we have some biotech kind of happening, just not a lot, but we knew that uh, Los Alamos National Lab would be a place where we could both work and we found positions there. And, I, and that's when I first got into flow. Interestingly, when I interviewed at Los Alamos, I was interviewing for a job in the weapons program. So there's two facets of Los Alamos National Lab. There's the side that does more science and engineering. And then there's the side that's very much focused on the nuclear nonproliferation stuff and like okay. what we would say weapons. Um, so, I was interviewing for a position in a division there and a person from the National Flow Cytometry Research Resource, the NFCR at the time, came to my talk and he said, his name is John Martin. And I'll never forget, John Martin went back to the director of the flow resource at the time was Jim Fryer saying, Jim, you might be interested in this person because she's interviewing for this job, but she would be fit really nice in the NFCR. And so that's when they reached out to me and I said, oh, I didn't realize there was this big flow cytometry group and, you know, people that are doing uh, biomedical optics, which is right up my alley. And so that's when I switched over and, and got the job there. That's when I started flow. So that was probably 2006. And at the time, Jim Jett was still involved in the flow resource, but it was Jim Fryer who was the director. Okay. So uh, is this a picture from back then? Just get, a, was, I haven't got a description on this picture, but. 
that's a picture for from graduate school. So that's when I first, you know, was doing stuff like that with, you know, okay, we got an oscilloscope, we got a function generator, modulating laser, that type of thing. I never thought was chemical engineering, but I was in this chemical engineering lab doing that stuff. And you would think that it would be more physics or electrical engineering or, but yeah, that's graduate school. And I think there's another one that I have it from Los Alamos. I'm going to have to guess which one that is now. Yeah, oh, there we go. That's the, Los That's the lab that I worked in as a postdoc. So right behind you is a big flow cytometer. <laughs> Can you see the big laser? There's a, you know, right by the door behind you, there's a long spectrophysics laser, an argon ion, yep. And um, there's, you know, there's a flow cell there. There's lots <clears> of, there's a function generator, some oscilloscopes. There's a lot of um, mixing boards there that we were doing some analog mixing. So I worked on this tool that was a, uh, what we call the, the, we called it the phase, the phase system, but it basically is a lifetime flow cytometer. The yep. flow cytometer that can measure fluorescence lifetimes. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. I noticed the cables going over to the right or over, that's, those are cables that connect into a data acquisition system that was built at Los Alamos. So we had, um, we were trying to do real time analysis and of lifetime and yeah. And that built, that instrument was actually, when I got there, it was kind of starting to collect some dust. And I said, what's going on with this? And they told me oh, the history about it. And the history is really great. I mean, this, that instrument was originally designed and built by John Steinkamp. So Dr. John Steinkamp worked on it. He's really the brainchild of lifetime cytometry and Harry Chrisman as well. So him and Harry Chrisman, um, and I, I met both of them actually, and they came to Los Alamos during the time I was there. And um, they both were used it a lot. Harry had a lot of interesting applications for measuring lifetimes with cells. And John was really, you know, a lot of the engineering and developing the, and, ref, and he was so meticulous. His lab notebooks were in that lab and I would read through his lab notebooks and they had these like perfect descriptions of what he was doing and like, very, very careful calibration and optimization of that instrument. It was really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so for those listening, the picture <clears throat> isn't anything like you resemble a flow cytometer today. There, there are more, it looks more like a telephone circuit switchboard <laughs> with more cables coming in and out. It's and a ton of spaghetti, black spaghetti of the wires, yeah. absolutely everywhere. Uh, yeah. By the time I got in, I was in the MoFlow Mo flow generation where there was a switchboard and wires, but nothing <laughs> as complicated right. as that looks. Yeah. But I suppose quite literally that was a lifetime ago. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. <laughs> Dad joke, those right? days. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first commercial flow cytometer? Can you remember? Yeah, um, there, the, it was a fax caliber, the caliber, oh, because yes. we were right in that same lab you don't see it, but on the other side, Los Alamos by that time had acquired a lot of um, a lot more modern. We had an LSR2, we had two calibers. They had a, an old Vantage. Uh, what else were they getting at the time? I think they ended up getting an Acury. Um, <clears throat> and so there weren't a lot of really the new stuff until I left and then they acquired more new stuff because by now I know they have kind of a Sony system. They had an imaging cytometry system. Uh, but, but we, were, we were still at the time really working, using the caliber a lot. A lot of the users in the division had, were you know, running samples on that. 
trying to think no. if I'm missing one of them. I don't know. Cal Calibre was my first, and then I went to Scions, mm. actually, some of the first oh, Scions that came out, which were okay. Yeah, okay. revolutionary at the time. Really small and super, super easy to use. Certainly in our hands, they, they were very yeah. reliable uh, in that case. So you're now not just involved in the academic side of the optofluidics, the bioprobes, the fluid mm -hmm. dynamics, which are all those skills you've brought up, sort of you are brought up with through mm -hmm. your PhD postdoc research days are now still with it. But you yeah. also run a core facility there as well. I actually don't really, because at our university, we, um, we don't have a lot of people that will that necessarily use it. I mean, we're a state university. We're more folk, we're engineering ag strengths. Um, we're kind of the land grant university, which means we serve you know all the students from the state. Our university is about roughly fourteen thousand students. It's not huge, but um, in general, we don't have like we're not we don't we're not near a med well we are near an osteopathic medical school, but we're not we don't have a medical school on campus nor a vet school. So there isn't like the critical mass of users to really create a cytometry core. Um, there are, we do have like a microscopy core on campus and then there's like kind of another quantitative science core where we have some lots of mass spec and some GC stuff. But what I do with my cytometers, because I've acquired them over the years for my own needs is that I, I just welcome users if they need. So like, for example, there's a biology professor and he reached out to me recently. He's like, can we use your flow systems and we'll train them on them. You know, we'll help them with it and then they can use them. So so that's kind of how I done it. And and usually it's not overwhelming. There's not a like a lot of people that where we it wouldn't be manageable or we would need kind of the more infrastructure that a, a resource lab would need, like the, the key training people and you know the educational component and all that. That's very similar, I guess, of, of how core facilities would have started, you know, because mm -hmm. it wasn't a user base necessarily for them. Yeah. They would have had it for their own primary research or development R&D and then the academics start to come and want to use it and there's that bills. I just watch this space. Yeah. They must have more biological research there just needing. I, the, the bacteriologists, the, the yeast, the fungi, the algae, you know, beside the yeah. cell biologist, surely they're using the flow cytometer. So yes, need, you need to get them back in there and using it. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, in fact... Yeah, I mean, even the people that I work with and, you know, I'll collaborate with people or just in other realms of the university and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah I know I, I want to use your flow for this project or that. And then, you know, people get so on a track of what they know. And then, you know, you got to sometimes breaking them away or really rec letting them recognize, hey, look, this this could be a way to characterize what you're trying to do. So you sent another picture, which is probably apt at this point of yeah, yourself. Yeah. So that uh, was taken um, uh, with my very first PhD student. So I was a very junior faculty. I was starting off and I, I thought, what am I gonna do, right? You, you're in this faculty position now and you have to run a research program or have you know this bright, brilliant research idea to write grants to get money for it. What I did is I told Jim Fryer at Los Alamos, I said, look, I wanna continue lifetime, you know, and." the only way I can continue lifetime is just to basically replicate what I was doing there as a postdoc. And he said, go for it. You know, sometimes finding your own niche as a faculty member can be tricky because you don't want to do what your advisor's doing, or you don't want to, you know, like 
be perceived as you're copying or piggybacking or whatever. But he wasn't, you know, nobody was really doing that in Los Alamos except for me as a postdoc. And at the time in Los Alamos, a lot of our members were kind of doing, going to branch off into other things. And so I took some of the instrumentation down with me to NMSU. They gifted me and I started building a lifetime cytometer there. And we built it with my graduate student, Rofan. Um, he's now works at a microscopy core in Mississippi. Um, but he, he, he and I started assembling that. We just, we were, I had a lab full of nothing. I came to NMSU and they said, here's your lab, an old sink, you know, nothing, nothing there. So I had to take these, this old instrument and begin to rebuild it and basically do develop a cytometry system. So he was your first PhD student. So a small group starting back. How, how intimidating was it to start your own academic group and have your first students and so forth how how uh, did that feel that's quite a big step it's yeah it's it's very scary it was i mean it was you feel like a deer in the headlights like what do i do now you just know the expectations right and the expectations are to bring in lots of grant money to publish to publish as much as you can in high impact papers to get your students graduated past a master's, past a PhD degree, to teach all these courses that we need you to teach, to act, to participate in service activities. So you know you have all these responsibilities and all you can do is just time manage as best you can. And so that's all I did is I just tried to do that. You know, and then there's the lingering fear of what if this project doesn't work or what are we gonna do next? Or how do I know if I'm gonna come up with a good idea, a bright idea to, to take the next step? And, and that's when you rely on your student and like how, how they are and their, you know, their ideas and you guide them through that and you help them read the literature and papers. And it's tough, it's tough. You wear a lot of hats, you know, the mentorship hat is, hat is really tough because getting students to learn what it's like to be a researcher, to do a PhD degree. But I've always surrounded myself with people that are really helpful. Like I continue to collaborate with some people from Los Alamos. For example, Mark Niver, who is now at Milton E Biotech. He does all the data work analysis stuff. And he's been great. He's like been, you know, big part of like the stuff we've done because it's the data system that we really rely on for lifetime analysis. And just other people in general, like even Kevin, my husband, we he has a lot of good biology that could utilize that we could use as applications for the lifetime instrument. But yeah, it is back to your question. It's it's kind of um, nerve wracking and stressful. You had the N of one at that point. Your your group has grown. So I presume this is your. Yeah, is so that's kind group? of a more recent group picture. It's it's kind of gotten bigger and smaller over the years. Um, one of my I have a postdoc there on the end, Jesse, is in the black shirt, and then I have undergraduates. I have two graduate students in the front, Samantha and Arik. Arik just graduated with a master's degree, and he's working for SciTech now. So wow. he, yeah, so he's the guy right in the middle, and then the people behind him are some undergrads, and then I'm kind of hiding back there too. But yeah, that was a more recent uh, picture of my group. In the past, I've had bigger groups where I've had like four to five graduate students, a postdoc. I've had like at sometimes as much as seven undergraduates. So, and then now, right, right now, my group's actually kind of small. I only have one graduate student, one postdoc right now, but um, there's always undergraduates that want to do research. So they can be really helpful because they're all very smart and they, but it takes a lot of work to train an undergrad because then they do research with you for a semester and then they say, okay, thanks, uh, you know, and then they go on their way. 
So the investment in time is tough with undergraduate students. Yeah, no, I, I fully appreciate that. The time effort in to get the reward back, which doesn't always follow. But yeah. And so thinking of undergraduates is also the importance of teaching and not just teaching undergraduates necessarily, but teaching more globally. So yes. you said, again, you sent loads of brilliant pictures. So could you describe what's in this picture for those listening? Yeah, so one of the university was doing kind of a promo on active learning. And so this is one of our classrooms on campus. That's what we call an active learning classroom because the walls are whiteboard walls and the students sit around in round tables and they each have like a monitor and laptops for each of their round tables. So it's geared more for them to be doing something rather than just sitting passively listening to a lecture. So what I was doing there is I was having them do teamwork and then I was walking around the classroom helping them as they were doing on the whiteboard, um, solving um, the what we call the Navier-Stokes equation. So in fluid mechanics, there's a big momentum balance that you do to understand um, how velocity profiles change and pressure differentials change. So like, you know, for example, like how airplane gets its lift or how we, we, we use it to characterize also flow through a pipe. So water flow through a pipe. So um, that's the basis of laminar flow, right? And laminar, um, so I was working on an equation there where we were learning how to balance uh, momentum or it might've been an energy balance on that one. But yeah, I, I, um, I do a lot of teaching. That's part of chemical engineering is teaching um, different classes. I'm thinking now you've got a lot of teaching. Uh, your group fluctuates in size, but it can be six, seven, eight people in your research group you're writing grants, you're publishing. You've said to yourself, you're only 45 <laughs> and you have three children. Yes. Uh, and the ages of those, if I may ask? Right now they're 15, 13 and 10. So a lot of this career has been developed alongside balancing a family life as well. Right. That, how have you gone about that? Any tips and tricks for people there thinking, well, I, you know, I, I want a successful scientific career like yourself. I want a family. How do you balance all that? I, some, I get that question a lot and it's difficult to answer because I don't know how. I think I take it day to day. It doesn't come without sacrifice. You know, there are times I've traveled back to the last meeting in Philadelphia my kids were like, mom, why can't we go with you? And we're Kevin and I just said, well, it's, it's just a quick trip. I'm going to be busy the whole time. And, and so, um, so there are times we'll have to leave them. Uh, but I, I'm thankful for the family and support because we really have had important support over the years with my in-laws, as well as my parents, as well as their aunts and uncles that help. So we have family that can work can be with them if we can't. Um, for example, both of us are traveling or, and over the time of, you know, going through tenure was tough, but we, um, you know, if we're not at work, we're just home with them. It's, you know, you have to just know that there's not a lot of like your own personal time. It's just, you're with family, you're with your kids or you're, you're at work and you know, COVID changed things a little bit because we are home a lot with them and we stayed home with them and they liked it and I like it too. And, you know, I technically could do a lot of stuff from home. I can't be in the lab and like watching the students or, but I can do stuff from home with the kids there. And, and now they're older, so they're more self-sufficient and, you know, they, they don't really need the handholding, but it, uh, yeah, I have to owe it a lot to Kevin, my husband, because he, he was really stepped up. He's not quite as busy as me. I know his career is kind of 
been a little bit different. He he does um, he's a biochemistry professor. He does yep. a lot of publishing and grant writing and all of that. And he's like an associate department head, but he's not much into the society work like I am. So he doesn't have that stuff that to, that he's doing. That's a good question, actually. How much time would you say you actually put towards the the society activities? Do you have a feel? For I'd that? say it's I'd say it's at least twenty five percent of my time. It's a quarter of my time because if I if I look at my day, you know, I say at least. I mean, it could be even more and during some parts of the year. When I'm teaching in the fall, that's usually like fifty percent, and then like reading, re uh, doing research should be at least 60%, but by then I'm over a hundred here. But I think with the society, um, I put in at least like, for example, yesterday, I think I put in like three to four hours with, with ISAC doing meetings, doing some planning, doing emails. Yeah. So that's on top of your hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, It's on top of what yeah. I should. Well, some things do suffer. For example, I've been wanting to write two grants and I just haven't and I just feel like those are th things that can easily be put to the back burner but then it becomes worrisome because you'll there's no deadline for those and so you just think mm -hmm. oh I'll do that you know I'll do that this summer and then all of a sudden it's July okay well maybe I'll try to do that for the fall and that's worrisome and even papers like I rely a lot on my students to get send me a paper so we can talk about it work up and submit it and this year I've had a paper deficit and that's worrisome too because I know that there's, and a lot of that's owing to um, kind of COVID coming back from COVID, yeah. but also a dip in like the num the students I have right now and who's working, which is fine, but still that's worrisome. Cause if I'm not publishing one given year, then then I have this, you know, gap on my CV where I don't have papers and that's, you know, that's not good. And so I, some I think over do, the COVID years, I think that, the, the, you know, on the, on the grant panels, you're going to be looking at CVs and thinking, well, obviously there's a, a gap yeah. it's going to slow it's going to thin out at the very least yeah over that point that's uh, and, and that's just i think the the way it goes so as you say it's a lot a lot of hours and you said you like baseball yeah uh yeah. and traveling we like uh, traveling we like baseball like that's a picture Ooh. in japan so when one of the a uh, few years back i i had kind of a grant rut in which i wasn't funded and i had it's before i got my r01 grant which my nih grant now and then it was i had some nsf money and they expired and then i said i'm really like wanting to do something different and so i learned about the us fulbright program the fulbright scholar program where faculty can apply to the state department for a fulbright grant and then be paid to basically live in another country for some time doing research. And at the time, I started collaborating with Miho Suzuki from Saitama University, just north of Tokyo. And I reached out to her and I said, I'm going to apply for a Fulbright to see if we can, if I can work with you in your lab, because she had some really interesting um, stuff that she had an application for lifetime cytometry using like FRET. So she had this um, FRET yep. probe that would go into the cell and she would do some enzyme cleavage. To, and lifetime is a good tool for that. So I applied and got it. I didn't think I would get that grant, but I did get it on that first try. And I told we told our kids like, look, we're moving to Japan for, <laughs> for six months. So that was that's another nice thing about a faculty position is you get these opportunities, you know, it's a flexible and you can leave your university for some time and you can still be paid, but you, you know, you now you have this experience. 
And any concerns about taking the children out sort of six months, a long time out of their, you know, yeah. their, their young age, their, uh, in education? Was there any yeah. concerns there? Were they worried about it or? They were worried, but they trusted us and they, we, we were certainly worried. And, you know, fortunately there were, it was a good time of their, um, their, their schooling for the, us to do that because nobody was in the middle of high school yet. They were all still kind of younger, kindergarten, you know, elementary age. And so they weren't in middle school yet. So they were all right. They could all be in the same school, but it was, yeah, it was an experience. They loved at the time they didn't like it, but now that we are back, they always, they talk about fondly, like we want to go back to Japan, but it was hard for them at the time because we put them in the Japanese public school system and they just didn't, you know, they didn't know any Japanese. We had no language skill at all in Japanese. And they just were immersed in that listening to a teacher teach them in Japanese all day long. And they started picking it up. They would get like some assistance with some teachers that were, you know, English, but it, it was tough for them, but they, you know, we made them do that and they, they agreed and they, you know, they were worried, but they trusted us. And we said, Hey, this is a good experience for you guys. And then, so they would walk with all the Japanese students to the school every morning. And yeah, it was, it was neat to see. It, was... it sounds terrifying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to have that sort of just dropped in. And so how right. is their Japanese? They were literally dropped in. So right now we they have no knowledge Japanese. Our youngest she does very well counting because in kindergarten they do a lot of counting and like like kind of a using like the hiragana katakana kind of Japanese phrases. So she does okay, but we yeah none of us really picked it up during the time they did okay. They could understand kind of what the teacher was trying to tell them, and there were things that we remember like how to sit you know things like well, hello, how are you? Or I'm from um, US or things like that. But they, yeah, it's, 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 it's hard, it's language, it, you know, unless you're there for years and years and you keep, keep up the communication, you know, as they say, you'll just lose it. And so I'm going to come back to some other things now. So I've asked how you got into place cytometry, where you are today. If you could do any job in the world, what would it be? Wow. Um, I think I would, I would de- be a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> I know it's, I consider that, a, I mean, it might not be like a career, right? But I think that if I could just go back and have the choice or ability to do all, do what we want to do, like all of this traveling, all of these experiences with them, but be able to just stay home with them, I would have done that, I think. Um, cause you do miss a lot of their life when you're working a lot. And, um, and it's hard to imagine, you know, like a different career, um, outside of what I'm doing now. I don't know, but I think, you know, being, being just like the at home person would be, would be oh. nice. <laughs> but in 10 years time, they'd, they'd have fledged the nest and, you know, they, they won't be home anymore. So true. And you have a you have a really good career. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you call it a job? Would you call it a career? Or would you call it your passion? I would call it a career. Um, it's be, it's somewhat become a passion. I mean, somewhat because um, for some reason I found this this area, this field. I found like a community of people that I like to work with. 
the a thing that I'm kind of good at that I you know that I are we stand out you know we have our own little niche within that field you know is is kind of an expert in that and and then the leadership stuff you know participating with people to run the society so I think it's a passion from that perspective in that I I thoroughly enjoy it you know I really do I I I, I don't have any complaints about it um, but I wouldn't say like it's like I you know it's like a I couldn't live without it. It's not quite that, um, but certainly, <clears throat> certainly a great, a, a great job. I, I mean, being an academic, you know, teaching, you have new students every semester, fresh, you know, blood that or fresh students that are like, you know, really eager to learn. They keep you kind of young at heart. You, the faculty you work with are all kind of focused on the same mission of improving, you know, improving the curriculum and teaching. Then aside of that, I have this entirely other people that I work, other group of people in cytometry. And so it's, yeah, it, it's a great, I, I don't know. I couldn't see, it's hard to see myself doing something else, but. I'm glad you said passion. So I can't see how you could be, you, you would not be doing so much for Isaac if it yeah. was not for passion. <laughs> I, 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 it, yeah, yeah. it has to be because so much is voluntary. Yeah, you're choosing to you're choosing to be there. You're choosing to drive it, which actually comes to a good bit. <clears throat> ah, Mrs. President-elect, <laughs> what's your what's your uh, agenda? What, what God, what what are you going to do? Do you have a yeah. vision? Is there something you'd like to pick up pick up on and drive through in your? It's quite a short term as well, isn't it? It is. And um, so the the rule the role of president-elect is actually to um, one, to run the meeting. So that's kind of the most immediate thing that I'm gonna be working on now is, is doing the, is chairing the entire program for Saito Montreal. Yeah. So I'll be focusing on that and, and that's a big job, right? And we you know, need to make sure that all of the people that wanna participate can participate. Everybody has a voice and what they think the meeting should look like and what they think you know, the speakers should be about or the plenary sessions or the parallel sessions. So, so that's a huge, you know, thing. Um, so that's my most immediate, you know, task ahead of me right now as president-elect, but also president-elect eventually um, starts uh, working with all of the committees and chairing things like one of our committee collectives, which, you know, getting all the committee chairs together um, there's a lot of it's you're part of the executive committee so the executive board is basically you know past president president elect president and then you know the other officers so uh so there's that and then once you once i am president which will be a one-year term and that begins in 2024 so that'll be a couple a couple years out and I've got to say, so, so far, you know, we talk about lots of volunteers, but it's not just about volunteers, the staff that yeah. are paid. Uh, there are the conference costs a lot of money. There's a yeah. lot of online content, which costs a lot of money to produce, uh, publish, put online. <clears throat> it's a big responsibility and the society is big. And yet yeah, COVID must have posed big challenges because as you say you're responsible as chair so I've been here with the Royal Microscopical Society and the big meetings if the meeting at Saito is a huge liability it's probably not the right term to use but if it was to go wrong mm -hmm. it could really it could almost 
bold Isaac yeah, if Saito was to go hard. wrong. <clears throat> what things have been... You, how have you coped over COVID? Because you were treasurer as well. Yes. So you'll, you'll be that very was... sensitive to these finances. Right. And, um, you know, some people would tell me, like, how do you sleep at night? And I, you know, I was never, I never thought we were like in this dire strait where we were going to just, it was going to break us. I mean, we knew that COVID, you know, is affecting people worldwide. We knew the economy was going to be going crazy for us because that's where investments are, basically. We knew without any meeting, we were going to take a big hit. Um, luckily, over the years, we've had some, you know, nice buffer of, for that. Uh, but we also were going through a time at ISAC where we were transitioning away from a managed society through FASEB uh, to, our, to self-managing ourselves, which is basically hiring our own staff and all of that. So there was a lot of cause to worry and to be fearful of what is going to happen. Are we going to survive this? What is going to, you know, what will ISAC's finances look like in the future? And so what we, you know, the things that we did were trying to be as conservative as possible. Um, we knew that we had already created a budget, you know, our annual budget budgets in for things like the meeting budgets in staff time and effort, you know, and, and all of that. So when COVID hit, you know, things happen in which, okay, maybe we're not gonna get all this meeting revenue, but we already have in our budget and we know what the cost is gonna be. Maybe we can go get away with a virtual meeting that's somewhat lower cost, look to our industry and vendors to support it yeah. and then carry through. And then there's a philosophy of how much should be in your reserves? How much investment should you have to save the society if something is very critical? So at that point, Johnny, our president, came up with a mission continuity committee to, to be think, thinking of and focused on situations that could occur, and we need to figure out ways to mitigate those. So it was, it was a tough time, yeah, but we would have lots of Zoom meetings uh, throughout COVID with Andrea Kosarica, you know, who was yep. the pres president, and then um, Johnny, who was becoming president, we had Paul Wallace, past president, and then um, myself and as the treasurer. So it was, um, and then David Galbraith was the secretary. So we had a lot of meetings to, to think about how is it going, what's going to happen, you know, and. Uh, it's interesting, it's interesting I, I guess, because you were under FASEP at the time, for the Royal Marks Topical Society, it's, it's had that, it's, it's got its reserves to mm -hmm. weather storms, but it's painful. You know, when you're yeah. sitting on its deck to actually see those funds dropping because that's your rainy day money yes. on a rainy day and, and it's yeah. going down. And you think you can't only have so many more rainy days. I, fortunately, I've got to say, I think it's similar for Isaac. It was very much, the, the, the damage was very much, very limited. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think, again, one of the great confidences, and I think you say you're not losing sleep over it because the membership is very supportive. So they will get behind whatever is being delivered and they'll be registering for the virtual meetings, whatever else it is. The companies are very much on side as well because, you know, yeah. we, they're very much part of the same community. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. it's really important to have them completely on side and as transparent as possible with it. Right. It'll be interesting to see how it goes, especially because I know the membership model uh so the fees model has changed and it'll be interesting yeah. to see how that pans out because that's 
that looks quite experimental uh, from where I'm sitting. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how many of each tier come in to see if that budget actually does work or not. Yeah, it, um, when we were thinking and rethinking the membership tier structure, you know, a lot of research had to go into what, you know, what are stand, what are other societies doing? How is this gonna work? What do we anticipate? Um, what structure do we anticipate most of the people opting into? Yeah. How this can, how can this support people from, a, from a countries that don't, you know, that don't have the infrastructure or that may have a more income that's not, you know, that wouldn't really allow them to like come in at a platinum. So how do we use that as a consideration? Because yeah, because this is a worldwide society and this tier structure is gonna affect, you know, affect everyone. Interestingly, I think what they, um, what Courtney, our ED said is that we have a more people doing the platinum and gold than she expected. I think I think the highest participation rate is in like the highest tier and maybe wow. one of like the second, the third down tier. She thought a lot, we were expecting a lot more coming in at the lowest tier, which is like a cheaper, you know, way. But there, but the way that people are actually be registering as members was a little bit more unexpected. So it would be interesting yeah. to see how that breaks down globally. Cause I think yeah. in the UK, the platinum model will always be imp almost impossible to get through certainly work expenses to say, cause, cause it's inclusive of the conference. It'd right. be really hard to actually justify that from a UK and maybe even European perspective. So it'd be really interesting actually to see how that model yeah. works in different parts of the world itself. I need to be wrong because we, we've only got 10 minutes left. I'm, I'm yeah. very quickly through. Uh, sure. some, quick, some quick fire questions. Are you an early bird or an eye owl? I would say I'm a night owl. Okay. Yeah, I, I can work at night better, yeah. PC or Mac? That's a funny one because I do both. I, I need, I have a Mac. This is what I'm on right now, big iMac. But my laptop's a PC because I need certain programs in chemical engineering that use PC. So I, I do both and I love both. Oh, okay, so it's answer. Okay, so McDonald's or Burger King? McDonald's. <laughs> oh, that was a quick answer. So what's your go-to? So, okay, there's not many ever say that. So what is your go-to when you go to McDonald's? Um, the sausage egg biscuit. I don't breakfast. have that in the UK. Okay. <laughs> it's a breakfast one. Breakfast sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, I, but breakfast are my favorites. Um, I, I, I've got to say, I think McDonald's do a pretty good breakfast. It's different. It has its place in And their world. coffee. I really like their coffee, actually. Yeah, yeah, their coffee. coffee is good. I wish they did decaf. On, on, on that note, tea or coffee? Coffee. Yeah. Wine or beer? Wow, that one also is very tough because I like um, we we have we have a microbrew program in chemical engineering here in our department, and so and there's a lot of microbreweries all throughout New Mexico. And that the protein fermentation? Huh? Are you sure that's not just a protein fermentation lab that's doing? Right. <laughs> See, it's a, it's a chemical engineering problem, like right. But we um, but there's also a lot of wineries around here, and we. Um, I, I, I do enjoy wine, so I, it's tough. Maybe, probably beer, if I had to choose. Okay. Chocolate or cheese? Oh, cheese, I'd say. I definitely answer. Okay. Go to a conference. Uh, maybe you're an invited speaker, and you get taken out for an evening meal. What would be the ideal food that would be served up for you? Because quite often you don't get to choose what you're going to eat. 
gets put in front yeah. of you. What would be, if it came out, you go, oh, yes, perfect. What's that food? Probably eating like a Japanese dish. Like sushi is great, could be sushi, but it could be something like okonomiyaki. I love that when we had that in J- Japan or um, takoyaki or even yakisoba, like something like that. I would be like, this is great. Okay. <laughs> On the opposite to that. Yes. What is the worst thing that they could put in front of when you go, oh no, and I have to eat that? Yikes. Oh gosh. Is there anything you don't like that you don't I'm really not eat? a picky person, so I can't think probably something like if I if something bland, like just something like, I don't know, meat and potatoes. Like that's not to me interesting. Like I love a steak, right? I don't know, like, but I something I don't know just some I like things that are really more um like ethnic spicy different um so something bland I would say oh this is boring who cooks at home I uh we all do my one of my sons loves to cook he watches this youtuber that and he and then my husband and I like to cook together so we'll we kind of all do it sometimes one or the other of us will like have more time to do it but for the most part we're it's a group thing okay and book or tv tv <laughs> and so, so what's your tv vice that you're now going to confess to but you'll regret afterwards yeah right um we watch lots of so we subscribe to everything we have hulu we have peacock we have netflix we have hbo we have um what's the other one that i'm forgetting so we always have a recurring show we're watching and it's just a way to like relax I feel like I know some people can relax with a book but I do so much other reading like reading grants reading papers that when I go home I just want to like stare at something and so um right now we're watching um a Hulu show called Dope Sick so we were like kind of binging that right now recently but we were watching um the morning show oh Apple TV Apple that's the other one you're watching that so I don't know we'll pick whatever is like the good show and we binge it Okay, that's a very good answer. And what about your favorite film? My favorite film? Wow, that's a tough one. I mean, there's every year it's good movies that come out. I mean, I, you know, like if I had to choose probably like The Shawshank Redemption, that's a great movie, Ah. great story. But I honestly, I do love movies and it can, it can vary. Okay, do you have a Christmas film? Oh, a Christmas film. We love Christmas Vacation, Lampoon's National Lampoon. Yes. We watch that every year. And like, I, I'll always laugh at that movie no matter what. <laughs> yeah, which is sad because you know what's going to happen, but it is still entertaining. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I won't ask what your favourite scene is. I'll do that afterwards. <laughs> what, <about laughs> yeah. what type of music are you into? I like, um, so I listen to like um, the you know the satellite radio stations like xmu so like alternative stuff i do you know like to go back to like alternative things like um oh gosh like i'll probably date myself but we'll listen to like a lot of the cure or um new order or we'll listen to like pearl jam like stuff like that but also like more modern stuff like i really like the bleachers and i like the i like the churches um I like arcade fire so i don't know we're we're kind of more I'm, i feel like more like rock genre i guess alternative genre that's 
No, it's all good. There's nothing to be ashamed of in that. <laughs> uh, so what about when has been probably the best time in your career? If you could live, if you could relive one year in your career, what year would it be? What time? I think I would re wow, yeah. Probably relive the early years becoming a faculty, because that was really fun. I mean, it's stressful and it's kind of intimidating, scary, but you know, that those early years I just started as a faculty member. I hit the ground running, I wrote grants and I was getting these grants and I got an NSF career, which is a big award for a young faculty. And I always just felt so great at that time in my career, like, okay, I can do this. You know, like the, that's like the, the confidence you need and the built confidence builder to say like, this is gonna, you know, this isn't a good, good career choice. So um, probably the early years as a faculty. Okay. And on the career, which actually is really good to hear because, you know, it is challenging, but it can be very, you've got a lot of freedom as well, which is very yes. nice and own responsibilities. What about the most challenging or difficult time you've had so far in your career? I'm not saying you're going to have more difficult or challenging times in the future, but in the past, what has been, have you found the most difficult or challenging time? Yeah, I think one of the most difficult was like um, going up for tenure and promotion because, you know, you start to really like be introspective of what you've accomplished and you look and you can compare yourself to other people and like what I've accomplished might is you know it does pale in comparison to a lot of people who are at universities like um I don't know USC or I don't know pick your any big name you know Michigan or whatever MIT Caltech places that are very very elite schools and what I do is really my productivity is is not really anything compared to that. I, I have to say it's, you know, I have a good career and I've produced work and I've published and all of that, but there are certain, you know, levels of academics that, you know, and I'm okay with that. But when you start thinking about that and it's very stressful and it's not great because then you have to put yourself out there to say, I'm applying for promotion Am I going to, you know, make the cut? And then people have to evaluate you. So it's it's not a good time. It's kind of stressful. And yeah, I I, I would I I will try and counter a little in your defence on this. You know, if you go to MIT or Stanford or you know they have big teams. You know, they have good funding streams. The funding they they have a lot a lot of PhDs and postdocs yes. within their labs. So they can turn out more. Uh, yeah. I, I think I think what they do is amazing because to manage that size team with such diverse research projects and the same focus field but so diverse, it's quite incredible. <clears throat> but I don't think it lessens what other universities are doing and the academics within their niche fields. Uh, mm -hmm. It's equally valid and equally important. Yes, you're not going to be publishing the same volume that they have the ability to because of the number of students. But again, the influence is still there on the field. It's uh, you're still teaching and inspiring. Uh, so, yeah. so no, don't worry about that. I, I, and you're right, you know, because we do, we don't get the best students. Mm. We'll, we'll get like kind of the second tier international students. So, you know, those schools draw the really strong, you know, graduate student applicants that come in. And you're right, there's a lot more money. <laughs> there's a lot more resources. And so it's true. You, it, it's probably easier to, to have those outcomes when you're, in a situation like that, then yeah, yeah and, and you know, if you as you're saying, if you if you're classing it as second tier, it's those who are coming in maybe with less opportunities to get into that point. You may have more influence over their future career than those mm -hmm. at a higher university. 
because their career yeah. is maybe already trajectory into a degree. It, this is stereotyping, so we have to be careful. But, but generally, I would say it doesn't matter where you're teaching. You can still make a big difference to the lives of the, the students coming in. So, no, it, it, it's all just different. There's different yeah. metrics. And I, I, we are just gonna, just gone over the hour. So I have to ask quickly, SPIE, SPI or CITO, which is your favourite conference? CITO. You had to say that, didn't you? <laughs> there is no choice. <laughs> but, but SPI is also another great conference that you must yeah. go to on an annual basis. Yeah, in fact, I chair with Attila. We chair one of the major sessions, the cell and um, I forgot our name of our session. It's like the um, tissue cell uh, session. So it's big and I do a lot of work with them too. But yeah, I, I go to that every year, but yeah, it's a good one. Please, I have to get over. Anyway, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Everyone who's watched or listened, please don't forget to subscribe. Please don't forget, actually, a really unscientific thing, like it. We don't often do that. And someone pointed that out to me the other day that everyone's <laughs> very quick to criticise, not, not the podcast, but just criticise other things. So actually, yeah, come on, get out there and uh, yeah, tell people about it. I think, it's, Jessica, to hear about your career, how you've balanced it, uh, the challenging times, I think it's been really good for people to hear, I hope, and show that yeah, it can be so. done and you can succeed, which is cool. Oh, thanks a lot, Pete. This has been fun. Oh, and I'll see you soon. Yes, see you soon.